0: Hey everybody, welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and this is a bonus episode of The Pillar Podcast, an interview in which we are looking forward to talking with Father Frank Cancro. Father Frank has one of the more interesting jobs as a priest that you will ever hear about because he is the National Circus Chaplain, which is something that you probably never heard of. Father, I'm very grateful that you're here. Thank you so much. And the reason we're talking today is because you have a very interesting and unusual apostolate, um, one that a lot of people probably haven't heard of, one that I hadn't heard of until just a couple of days ago. But um, your ministry, effectively, is that you are the National Circus Chaplain. That's Um, correct. Yeah. So so what is that?
1: So just like people who are stationary in a town need pastoral care, the same is true for all of those who, as we say in the business, travel down the road without a zip code, And and so I work with a small group of individuals who's who have made the commitment to provide pastoral care and services to folks in the circuses of the United States. There's about 40 traveling circuses in the United States, and they involve large numbers of personnel, both performers and workers. And our job is to be a pastoral presence to all of those folks around the country.
0: And, and who makes you the National Circus Chaplain? I mean, that's not a self-designated term, I suppose. How, how do you get the gig?
1: We operate under the auspices of the Secretary for Cultural Diversity of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. And mm. it really has been the USCCB who has had a focus for traveling shows and travelers, along with migrants and refugees, for really quite some time. And, and that, of course, flows out of the universal church's uh, ministry to those same populations. So it's really through that secretariat and specifically the office of, and this is a mouthful, the office of pastoral care to migrants, refugees, and travelers, Mm -hmm. um, that our operation exists and and that we uh, uh, work with the circus folks.
0: That's neat. I I have a lot of questions about that, but I I want to start with just uh, hearing about you. I mean, how did you, um, how did you get into this ministry? How long have you been working with um, with circus people? I mean, you're a diocesan priest. You're retired from um, sort of parish ministry, insofar as I can tell, right. um, but you've been doing this work, at least in a part-time way, for quite some time.
1: Right. Since about 2010, I've been involved in a circus ministry. So, you know, back in, before I was ever in the seminary, more than 50 years ago, I actually was a circus clown. I did some surface work for a few years. I was not particularly great at it or, <laughs> or well-known for it, but it's something I always wanted to do, and I did. And then when I moved out of that, I moved on to other things, and eventually that became discerning a vocational call and entering into the seminary. And by that point, most of all, of this past of mine was far behind me, and I didn't see it as, a, as something that uh, was having a tremendous influence on my life. So when I was a pastor in um, uh, Belmont, North Carolina, which is a suburb of Charlotte here in in the state, I um, was given a missionary for our annual mission co-op collection. Mm -hmm. And in 2009, that missionary came from the Circus and Traveling Show ministry. It was a sister, a missionary of the Sacred Heart, Sister Dorothy, who was assigned to my parish to come and beg for a weekend and and solicit um, uh, funds for the ministry. And I was uh, grateful to have her, and I honestly think the person in my diocese who did the assignments did so knowing something about my own background and that I would be open and amenable Mm -hmm. uh, to having a sister there, which indeed I was. But between two of the masses on Sunday, she had a little bit of time to relax, so I invited her to use my office uh, to just kind of hang out in. And in my office on the wall, there was a portrait of me as a clown, it was from an old magazine cover back in the days of AARP, when it was modern maturity, I'd done something with seniors, and my picture ended up on their cover. And that cover, uh, my mother had framed. And after my mother died, I inherited it. So it was hanging on a wall in my office. And I thought nothing of it until I walked in and sister was standing by it and pointing at it and saying to me, who's this? And I had to tell her my story. And uh, she said, at that point, you should be doing this work. And and I smiled and nodded my head. And two weeks later, I got a letter in the mail from Washington, D.C., inviting me to the annual meeting of the Circus and Travel and Show Ministry, which is held in Sarasota uh, every year uh, in Florida. Uh, and that January I went. And that January is when I was kind of put on board of things and became one of this small group of people working with the circuses.
0: How, how did you balance that and the parish? I mean, that seems like it would have been tricky.
1: Yeah, well, for all of us who are involved, uh, quite honestly, uh, at the time that was the case. Father Jerry Hogan was the at that time the national circus chaplain, was a priest of Boston and also a pastor. And Father Dick Natter, who was the other priest involved in, in this, is a priest from Ohio. Also had uh, pastoral responsibilities at that uh, at that point. So what we did was we tended to rely on the the sisters. There were two sisters at the time who traveled full-time on the road and lived in an RV. And so they'd spend a month or two at a time with an individual circus. And then as needs came up, they would contact us about where we should go and what days we should spend on what show somewhere in the country. So between the three of us, we figured out I can do these two days this week and go here. And so for me, it worked out to about four to five days a month. Mm -hmm. I could be on the road while being a pastor because I had a very good staff. Um, and and could do the the circus ministry uh, uh, from that perspective. So that's kind of, I think, between the three of us, how we would divvy up the amount of time we'd spend on the shows.
0: And then after you retired, you kind of started putting more time into this.
1: Yeah, one of my desires in retirement was to be able to uh, spend more time in the ministry, especially around holidays. One of the things that certainly suffered for circus folks was they performed during holidays, uh, but... We would never be available in order sure. to provide uh, services for them. So the exciting thing about retirement is that would be able to happen is I could spend definitely more time Christmas, Easter, and other significant times uh, on the road with the shows. Father, tell us about. I mean, you 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 kind of offered this thing that we
0: just slid right past, but that is you know very unusual for most people, which is that you trained to be a, a clown. You worked as a clown. How does that happen? I mean, how do you? What's the training like, and what was that life like for you? So,
1: well, I was very young at, at the time, so I was far more adaptable. Um, it, you know, living on the road is a is a challenge. Uh, um, um, when you're young, you can adapt to those sorts of things. It was always exciting. You were always learning new things. I I learned great things from great people. You know, along the way, and and also learned that I I wasn't as good as some other people were. in in this particular uh uh, work but in in a circus you always end up doing more than what it is that you've been hired to do so you know you help out with the uh, material stuff of the tents or uh, uh, concessions and all all the other varieties of things that make the show operate but but then you get your own you know routines with whoever you happen to be working with as part of the show but you know on a circus, you're working sometimes three shows a day, yeah. maybe even occasionally four shows a day. And, and in some circuses, you're in and out of a place within 24 hours. So set up, performance, wow. uh, meals, tear down, prepare for the next day, set up. I mean, it just goes on and on. So it can become rather routine and it, it can uh, wear on you sometimes uh, as well. So like any job, um, you know, you try and find ways to balance that for yourself and Uh, For me, what balanced it was being able to learn different uh, skills, certainly meet different people. I've certainly visited a lot of very small towns in the United States that would normally not be tourist uh, places at all. Or I know cities more by the interiors of their arenas than I do (laughs) by any of their uh, historical uh, markers. I'm
0: given to understand, and maybe this is not true, it's a myth, but I'm given to understand that sort of every clown has a kind of a character that is their own. Um, you know, and that people sort of are careful about not stealing from other people's routines or gimmicks. Or is that, is that true? Is that kind of how the clown
1: craft works? So not so much about the stealing, I'm afraid, but but <laughs> um, uh, pretty much, especially when I was in the business, which was back in the '70s, um, okay. you you would shape uh, yourself more around what were more traditional clown roles. So uh, there are generally three or four different types of clown. Um, uh, I was an Auguste clown, which uh, makeup wise is a combination of flesh tones and, and white as opposed to a white face clown or a character clown or a grotesque or tramp clown. Those are other kind of makeup forms. And and sometimes that would dictate the stuff that you would do or what your costuming might look like. But but no, there's there's very little honor, I think, among uh, clowns when it comes to routines. We. <laughs> we kind of take from each other and build on it. You kind of make things your own, but but you can pretty much recognize the threads of classic routines and a variety of different circumstances when you're watching different people uh, perform. It's part of the way that the industry grows, quite frankly. And when clowns get together, they jackpot. That's a circus word for talk. They jackpot about their stuff and that becomes a place to kind of gain new ideas and and, uh, develop new routines. And what is the history
0: of this art form? Does it go back to sort of medieval courtiers? I mean, is that kind of where cl- clowning, so to speak, begins?
1: Yeah, I, I'm I'm sure it does. Modern clowning, of course, uh, uh, starts maybe about 200 years ago and uh, becomes an audience diversionary sort of focus. But some would say that clowning actually goes back to the Greek theater and uh, becomes that that shadow figure who sort of um, prepares for and points the audience toward the action. Uh, that would unfold uh, on the stage. So, so so there's always been a character, it seems, uh, kind of connected to engaging the audience, focusing the audience, uh, and helping the audience get through in a sense of performance, whether it's comedic or dramatic. And clowns fell into that role uh, very early on. And classically, that was uh, the way that, that uh, many clowns perform.
0: Sure. You know, it reminds me even... In- in most Shakespearean plays, there's a, um, a, a fool of some kind who kind of p- shows up periodically to break up th- something dramatic or something tense or to even to kind of help the, uh, bring the audience back into place or something like that. And it sounds like cl- clowns have a similar, have had sort of historically a similar kind of an idea.
1: Yeah. During the Second World War, there are um, uh, photos of clowns who would often use their walkarounds, which are those little visual routines uh, around the ring, either before or during the show. Uh, to make political statements, or during the war, to criticize the Nazi regime, or so interestingly, there's always been this interplay with the very realities of everyday life, and the clown always seems to to be connected to that uh, to that reality.
0: Huh. That's really well. T- tell me about your your congregation, so to speak. Um, now that you are the the national chaplain, and you sort of help you coordinate this pastoral care from the team. Who, who who are uh, yeah, I'm surprised to hear the number of circuses in the country, but who are circus people what what is their where do they come
1: from what is their background so they're pretty di- a pretty diverse crowd to to be honest. Um, they are young and old uh, there's certainly a lot of younger performers in circuses simply because the kinds of things they do require bodies that 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 have to be far more agile. but there are some families that are you know six and seven generation families and when Mom retires from trapeze. She might work in wardrobe mm-hmm. while she has two younger adult children working on the, the bar again. And, and so so you have families from different age groups working uh, together. They come from varieties of places. Um, one of the reasons that Catholicism was certainly prominent in the American circus was that uh, we drew heavily from Europe and from South America in terms of the number of performers. And, and those families, at least, uh, Culturally were Catholic, so uh, there was a a fairly large Catholic presence within circuses. And those are still uh, two areas that uh, circus performers come from. On Ringling Brothers, when it existed, that was a fairly large show. um, You'd have as many as 24 different countries represented and and as many languages uh, uh, represented in one, you know, one gathering of three to 400 people. So, uh, so it's a very, very diverse. A group of people, and our ministry is not just to the Catholic performers, but you know the Catholic Church is the only denomination that has had uh, an ongoing and regular ministry to circus people in the United States, and has done it for more than a hundred years. So we're really trusted by circus personnel and owners to be present uh, 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 on the shows, and and uh, for that reason, they they trust us to be present to everybody, and so we really do have a ministry of presence to not just Catholics, but to everyone else on the show as well. There is a new group of performers uh, coming along too, not so much performers, but workers who are not really circus connected. This is like their first job or their first mm-hmm. entry into the world of, of, of circus. And that's a new experience for uh, for us and, and for them, too, because they're not as aware of the culture. You know, there's a language, there's a pace, there's a rhythm to circus life that they have to learn to get. Uh, used to rather than it just being a, a job for a certain number of hours a day. It's a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And and that's been an interesting to kind of help dovetail them into this more traditional uh, familial focus of, uh, of circus that exists in the United States as well.
0: What is that? I mean, talk about it sounds like there's a pattern of living, a, a rich sort of culture behind the big top, as it were. What are some of the characteristics of that?
1: So it's a mobile community, obviously, um, and, and so it relies heavily on itself. Uh, it becomes a very self-contained uh, kind of experience to the point that uh, depending on the size of a show, you might have a small school, a nursery school, you have a cookhouse or a cook tent. Everything you find in a small town, you'll, you'll find uh, a sort of in one way, shape or form in the context of a, of a show. Uh, so even things like entertainment is something that's done uh, between the folks that are on the show, and and uh, it becomes maybe a, a little too insular sometimes. You learn uh, you have to take time to be trusted by circus people if you're an outsider or what we call a townie, mm-hmm. um, uh, simply because life is lived in this web of of interconnectedness. So um, so you try and create a sense of community and family together, and and that word is used very seriously when people talk about their circus family. Is not just a nice a phrase to throw around it. It really is the same level of feeling and relationship that one has with their blood family. And, you know, once one has been incorporated into a circus family and that doesn't necessarily always happen easily, uh, but once it happens, um, that, that's a bond for life. And it doesn't matter whether you're still on the road or not, there's still connections between people that that never go away because of that um, uh, relationship that one you know, has had, I said that it's it's hard sometimes to get into that. When I first started with the, uh, with this uh, whole experience, the advantage I had was wearing a collar, which helped a little bit, but you know, people are still kind of tenuous because you're the new guy and they're not sure you're really going to stick around. Right. You know, which, which with circus folks, the longer you stick around, the more they believe you're actually committed to them. So that, that's a, becomes a big focus, but there, there were some key people on different shows who, who uh, they won't talk to you. They won't talk to you till they're sure you're going to stick around. There was one guy in particular. We're now very good friends. His name is Alex, who every time I went on the show, you know, Alex would kind of lift his head to say hello to me. And that's, that was the only recognition I ever got from him. And that went on for months. And wow. after about four or five months, we actually had a conversation of about three or four sentences. And I remember I went back to the sister's trailer because I was on a show that they happened to be on at the time and I banged on the door and I walked in and I said, you're not gonna believe this. Alex finally talked to me, which from a circus perspective was a big deal. It meant right. that I was finally kind of, well now Alex and I will go on for hours over coffee and, but, but you know, that, that tenuous start has to do with the way that a community uh, kind of becomes very interconnected and uh, interdependent. And the circus is very much that kind of, uh, of a community.
0: You know, you mentioned before kind of that ministry of presence and, and in a certain way, the way you describe things, it sounds like a big part of your ministry is not unlike that maybe of a military chaplain where you're, you know, a, a, a lot of your work, it sounds like, is the pastoral care of kind of listening and, and being a confidant and talking with people through their, um, through their, you know, maybe problems. or whatever. Is that how you spend a lot of your time in the circus?
1: Or? Yeah, in fact, that's a very good example, uh, I think, of the kind of ministry that we uh, focus around. And you know, the challenge of trying to engage everybody, in, in a sense. In fact, uh, the way it gets translated down is with some of the young folks on the show who are not uh, churched in particular, you know, we we still spend time with them. And the best explanation I heard of who we are uh, from one of those individuals was that they were explaining to somebody that we are like having their grandfather mm-hmm. with them on the show. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that's a very positive focus, well, that you are that presence that Gently supports that that loves unconditionally, and and so that ministry of presence does become really important. And it's and it, it really does uh, focus the whole uh, group of people on a show. For instance, on one show, we had our sacristan, the guy who would help us out for mass and find a place to have mass when we were on that show, was a Muslim guy who mm-hmm. who uh, was just committed to us being there and would do what we could. And then if they were in a small town and didn't know where the nearest mosque was, I or one of the others would try and help them find a place where on Friday morning, they might be able to sneak off to go to prayers. And on Greenland one year, we helped a group of young folks who uh, weren't too religious Jews, but they wanted to have a Seder mm-hmm. uh, meal. So we helped them get the stuff they needed. And we found a, a, a ritual called the 10-minute Seder. There was another one called the three-minute Seder, but I wasn't going to let them do it in that short time. Uh, so we got them one that we thought that would really work, and that became their uh, their way of expressing Seder. And it actually ended up being a whole company party by the time it unfolded. But but nonetheless, that kind of presence and companionship is is very, very much uh, who we are in, in, in the midst of the show. Yeah. What are some of the pastoral issues? I mean, I, I imagine that this
0: is an itinerant group of people, so – That's hard on marriages. It maybe introduces, you know, the possibility of substance abuse and other things. I mean, what are the pastoral issues that you find yourself really dealing with?
1: So the same that you'd find, uh, I think, anywhere, but what you're on target, uh, certainly issues uh, sometimes with alcohol or drug abuse Mm -hmm. can be problematic, especially with young people who might have a lot of time on their hand and may not be the best at uh, handling issues of relationships and, you know, the other kinds of ups and downs that are part of, of everyday life. Um, uh, the, the normal relational issues—people getting mad at each other, people falling in and out of love with each other, not knowing what to do with uh, those kinds of realities—they become a part of what you deal with. Also, um, you know, the joys of uh, raising family, the the tragedies of losing uh, people—so weddings, funerals, births—all um, of those things are certainly a big part of of experiencing um, life with the uh, folks on the circus as well. And for the Catholic population, dealing with the sacramental moments uh, that are part of their life, as well as doing what you can to help provide an adequate formation, uh, uh, especially for sacraments uh, in in individual family lives.
0: Yeah, can you talk about your sacramental ministry? I mean, do you find would you find yourself doing weddings very often? Do you have are there? Do you confirm? I mean, what what does your sacramental ministry look like?
1: Again, it's pretty much the same as you find in any uh, parish. You have a an ongoing schedule of baptisms and first Eucharist and confirmation and uh, weddings. Um, um, They're pretty much all the same uh, kind of routine and and a lot depends on what particular show you're with and what the mean age, of course, of the group might happen to be. Um, We had a large number of baptisms uh, this last year, especially through the Midwest and the far West in the country, not so many in the East, but, but then again, a few more weddings on this side of the Mississippi uh, in this past year than uh, maybe the two years prior to that. But but uh, the regular sacramental life of a parish is what you would see reflected in the life of the circus. Sometimes it it doesn't always happen <clears throat> at the same moments. So not every kid is seven or eight years old when they receive sure. first Eucharist because formation sometimes for us may have to take two whole seasons rather than yeah. one semester or or, or two. And we rely heavily now, especially on social media for uh, preparation materials and for dialogue uh, between uh, individuals and getting people ready, as well as being on the spot to uh, to work with folks to prepare them for sacraments.
0: You're, um, you're a canonist, and, and I am too, and, and so I have some kind of nerdy questions that I've been wondering about, because I suspect, although you're called the circus chaplain, you're not sort of technically a chaplain in the in the canonical sense that is to say you don't sort of have the care of souls as a you know as being sort of legally equivalent to a pastor. So I imagine you have a lot of jurisdictional tricky jurisdictional things with marriages or even where to record baptisms and I mean is there a playbook for you
1: is, this Actually, stuff? um actually I have far more jurisdiction than you might think. And okay part of that okay yeah from tell me. Propagation of the faith which uh, kind of set up the model for itinerant missions and the circus ministries around the world have always followed those same uh, kind of directives. The National Circus Church is St. Martha Church in Sarasota, Florida, uh-huh. and there's a history to why that is the case. But that's the place where all of our sacramental records are kept. Okay, so there, so everyone is
0: effectively a sort of it's a, a that parish is effectively a, a personal parish for circus people.
1: Uh, yes, I, I'm a member of the staff of St. Martha's in oh. Sarasota, even though I'm not, I don't physically live there. Sure, During the year, but I have faculties in the Diocese of Venice and. And uh, so my ministry with circus folks uh, generates itself out of that um, uh, focus there and that becomes our place of record. St. Martha's is the oldest church in Sarasota and it exists on land very close to where Ringling Brothers had their winter quarters and Mm -hmm. Ringling Brothers and their performers essentially built St. Martha's. And so it has had a connection to the circus really uh, for about a hundred years now. And Mm -hmm. and so uh, the Bishop's Conference designated it the National Circus Church. I don't know when, but I think it was probably in the 40s or 50s. The pastor prior to that in the late 20s and 30s, um, he, he was the one who ministered uh, to circuses. And, and that's, I think, why we've just continued to maintain all of our sacramental records, etc. in St. Mark is because of that tradition that was started in about 1923 or 24. So then if you need the faculty to confirm someone or something, you
0: don't have to figure out, okay, where are we right now? You, you can kind of always go through the Diocese of Venice.
1: Well, for confirmation, it's a little more complicated. Okay. You do have to have the mandate from the, from the local uh, ordinary. So, right. um, uh, so you do have to figure out where you're going to be and, and uh, right ahead in order to get permission uh, to have that mandate to do it. As well as permission from the local pastor to be in his jurisdiction to uh, celebrate a sacrament, even if you're doing it in the circus tent, you're still in his jurisdiction. So, so then the sacrament gets double recorded. It gets okay. recorded in his parish records, but it also gets recorded at St. Mark's in Sarasota. But for the other sacraments, it all fall, those fall pretty much under the purview of of uh, who I am in, in connection to to St. Martha's.
0: And so, do you have a, de- a delegation to witness? the marriages of circus folks kind of just always, or do you need to get, be in touch
1: with the pastor? Even in the diocese of Venice, I have to get explicit um, uh, permission from the pastor of St. Martha's to preside at the wedding.
0: So a little bit of paperwork on the road
1: then. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) What is this, what is your own um, uh, spiritual life like on the road? I mean, how do you maintain in, in interior life and, and sort of traveling and and I presume living in close proximity with other people and probably not having a church kind of, you know, not having the blessed sacrament at your disposal all the time. I mean, what what is your own spiritual life like?
1: Well, in fact, uh, up until the time the sisters left the road, we did keep the blessed sacrament and, 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 in, in the trailer and there was a small chapel uh-huh. uh, that was uh, always part of that. So uh, that's only not been available in the last two years when the sisters have left the road and, the RV that we used, unfortunately, is in disrepair to the point that we're not going to be able to take it back on the road again. Um, but for me, to be very honest, um, you know, one of the things about circus people is their days are late. Yeah. So um, the first show will never be before noon, which means that late morning is when things just start to gear up on mm-hmm. a circus lot. Now they'll go till after midnight. You know, um, when Ringling Brothers ran at school, school started at 4 p.m. Hmm. And, and went for five hours after that. But that's, that was the normal routine of most uh, folks' lives. But for me, what that meant was I, I had the whole morning to myself. So I, I had time for prayer and reading and reflection. If there was a local parish in town and I knew they had a, a daily mass and, and I had a vehicle with me, I I would I would go uh, over to assistant mass at a, a local parish if I weren't going to be saying mass on the side. I didn't necessarily say mass every day. A lot depended sure. on the size of the troop, how many Catholics were there, who would normally be free to come. Uh, those were the things that would determine the when and the how of saying mass. But weekends always, we would have one or two uh, masses, but during the week it was either I'd go someplace, or I might say mass by myself, or if I was with the sisters, the three of us would gather for the Eucharist. And but the morning was always a cherished time for uh, uh, for prayer. I was quite frankly able to pray in a more concentrated way than even in parish ministry hmm. when I was on the road, simply because I, that I knew during that time there'd be no disturbance from anybody because they were all still asleep. So
0: yeah. Your ministry, is not, it's not like you're in a deanery, and so you have brother priests around and things like that. So do you maintain friendships with brother priests? I mean, how is, it seems like it could become a lonely life.
1: Yeah, the good news is that uh, you know there, uh, there are a few of us involved in, in, in this together. So I, I mentioned Father Dick Notter, who is from Ohio. He's in his 80s, still going strong, and Dick and I talk regularly. Technology has helped improve that so we can visually also in, engage each other. But there are a few other priests. One is a a vice president from St. Bonaventure University, Father uh, Ross Chamberlain, he's a Franciscan. He works with us, uh, too, on a limited basis. And so he and I will often get together and we'll have we'll have Zoom scotch in the evening sometimes to just process stuff. And, for instance, he, he had to deal with the anointing and the death of a circus owner's mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, not too very long ago and and so that became an opportunity for us to process you know his stuff with that, along with uh, uh, just the situation itself and then losing uh, Father Jerry, who had been the national circus chaplain for twenty seven years, I know that affected all of us uh, pretty deeply, so being able to kind of engage each other uh, on a regular basis, uh, we do that, and I think we do it well, and I think that 's how we maintain. Uh, some sense of of that connectedness. Mm-hmm. I have a few priest friends who are not involved in the circus ministry, who who are very supportive uh, as well. I, as you said at the beginning of this, you know, a lot of folks don't even know about it, and in fact, some of them think it's a scam or or can't believe that the church would uh, do such trivial things. So, yeah. you know, so to have uh, priests who are not involved in it, who I still know, I can kind of talk to and who are willing to listen. To me, that's always been kind of a helpful adjunct as well for
0: me. One of the things that I noticed the conference sort of says it has a, the conference has a website about effectively your ministry, circus ministry. And one of the things it, it mentions is an encouragement for pastors. If the circus is in their town to come and maybe offer mass or hear confessions or something like that. Um, we have a lot of priests who listen to this show. Um, so um, I find myself maybe. Does that ever happen? I mean, do, do,
1: do priests ever do that? Yeah, sure. They do. Um uh, the one thing to say to priests is that you have to be your most adaptable self when mm-hmm. you're coming to do that, because you have to follow their schedule. They can't follow yours. Sure. And and uh, with that in mind, sure, it's it's always a possibility. On some shows, we have lay ministers who, uh, when they're in a town, if they're going to be in, in town for more than 24 hours, will maybe try and get in touch with a parish and and see if there's someone willing to come out who might. Uh, want to say mass? I will honestly say that uh, most of the time they don't get an affirmative answer mm-hmm. uh, 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 to that. But if priests are are willing to do that, if if they even have an awareness that a circus is coming to town, have them get in touch with the sponsor of that circus. It'll usually be a local business or some other venue that they they know, and that sponsor can be in touch with uh, the show, and and you know they can make arrangements and connections that way, or they can always be in touch with me through Facebook or through the uh, uh, conference's uh, site, and and we can do what we can do to try and set up an arrangement for them to be there. Most shows have a mask kit uh, on the show. Um, some small ones don't, but most do. And and so we can accommodate um, uh, someone coming on if, if that's a definite possibility. You know, this strikes me, Father, as um,
0: the, the way that you live and the kind of ministry that you do, is um, good for the set of sort of people who live migratory lives, um, who are connected to the circus. But of course, a much sort of broader category of people who live migrant migratory lives are migrant farm laborers or you know other kind of itinerant workers, and they don't necessarily have a chaplain. Um, I wonder: is there something the church can learn from your ministry and the way it works about how to provide pastoral pastor and sacramental care to you know to migrant agricultural workers and, and people like that, or is there another model?
1: Well, actually, I think you might be surprised to find out that some of those groups do indeed have a ministerial uh, uh, presence, Um, farm workers, especially. There's a whole, uh, in fact, that's how we got Father Dick Nodder involved in circus ministries. He was doing a similar thing in the farm worker community. And Mm -hmm. and, uh, because we were beginning to get so many Spanish speakers in the circuses, he was willing to come over and uh, some time ago and help with that. And then that's grown, of course. Since then, but there is a cadre of priests who do uh, uh, some of that work within the farm uh, farm community. But but there is a ministry to carnival workers, a ministry to rodeo workers, a ministry to horse race uh, 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 folks, to auto racers, to um, um, rest the wrestling community. Mm -hmm. So and that's all under our purview of circus and traveling shows. And there are individuals who kind of oversee all of those uh, different functions in terms of, of specific uh, uh, ministry to those folks.
0: Yeah. That's, that's
1: So do you kind of,
0: is it It's part of your job to coordinate that? Do you ever find yourself at the rodeo or at a wrestling match? Or?
1: Yeah, I don't. I stay pretty strictly with uh, circuses, but we have a few folks on the, so the committee is about 20 people and it involves all of those different um, uh, groups who come together once a year and we talk about what we're doing and with who. And there are a few who will do multiple things. We have a, a deacon in Chicago who will not only do um, uh, horse races, but he'll also do some circus work. And mm-hmm. and uh, our carnival, um, uh, we had a priest who died about a year ago. He would kind of do some crossover stuff. And now there's a deacon in, in his role whom I haven't met yet because of COVID. Yeah. And we'll find out what he's kind of willing to do as well. There's another clergy in um, milwaukee who does circuses but also does wrestling so so yes there's some crossover in terms of uh, of some of those um realities and father ross who i just spoke about uh, just recently blessed a boxing ring in massachusetts so cool so so you know it it, it kind of rolls along and is the conference the conference is funding all of this no (laughs) the conference is great at appointing you to do things but uh, but, uh, you know that's kind of the extent of where the conference sees its its purview i will say they are very helpful to us uh on a a few levels one is they have uh, gotten us some monies through the catholic church extension society so that part of our our budget comes uh, from a grant from the extension society that the conference office oversees for us every year that We have that because they help facilitate the paperwork and the other things necessary to obtain it. Uh, Plus, I do have to say the staff uh, at the conference has been really helpful for me. And just in terms of not only being a sounding board, but in organizing things and uh, putting stuff uh, together. But we're also part of the the mission cooperative program. So you uh, are certainly aware that there are mission collections taken every year in every parish in, in the United States through the propagation of the Faith Mission Co-op program, and we're considered a mission uh, activity, so we we are part of that. So last year, I think we were in five different dioceses, and this year so far, I've gotten the go-ahead from two, should hear from more in the next month or so. It's usually this time of the year they make their choices about uh, that, and, and so we'll benefit from uh, second collections in parishes around the country. That kind of fills out uh, the rest of our, our budgetary needs. And then we beg from, yeah. from individuals to assist us in the ministry as well.
0: Is it, what is the, I mean, what is the, is there an association of for traveling people? Claire, I mean, how, what, how do people give you money even?
1: Uh, so, so through the circus and travel and show ministry, um, again, through our Facebook page, we have a website, but it's not, it, it's still getting up there. It's, it's circus dot Um, um, but it's not up yet. So, yeah. but through our Facebook page, Circus and Traveling Show Ministry, there are opportunities for contributions there.
0: One thing I wonder about is, you know, there there isn't an, is an element, I suppose, of circuses, carnivals too, of things that are kind of, um, you know, sp- spooky, right? And and part of the sort of the the show is to, you know, um, longstanding sort of legends and and spooky things and these kinds of things. And is there is there an honest sort of spiritual can th- things that are happening, things to be sort of concerned about spiritually, or things that sort of have given you pause spiritually in in the kind that culture or connected to circus life, tarot card re- these kinds of things.
1: Yeah, I can't say that I see a whole lot of that, but certainly because of some of the cultures that we engage, uh, you do run into some cultural religious practices that you know are not uh, are probably not the best expression of of faith. Um, people coming from Caribbean countries from. Brazil, uh, you know, sometimes there are um, uh, mixtures of a, a more uh, nativist kind of religious practice with Catholicism that you have to spend some time to help them understand where one ends yeah. <laughs> and where, where one doesn't tread. Right. and And so that happens from time to time. But things more sinister than that, I can't say I've actually you know, really encountered uh, that. Well, I've encountered more of this kind of ignorance on the part of people of of things spiritual even to begin with. But I do think there's actually a very honest focus, even in the hearts and heads of uh, people who may not be specifically church connected, to find some sense of spirituality. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ten years ago, there was a, a book written by Elizabeth Martin. She's a member of our committee, and she's retired now as the, head of theology at St. Elizabeth's College in New Jersey. She wrote a book called The Conspiracy to Create Joy, which is a book on circus spirituality. She did a series of studies among different kinds of populations of folks in circuses and tried to distill from that uh, what she found there in terms of the life of the spirit and and, in relationship to folks. And it's actually a very positive uh, focus. And I I find people do try to be their best selves, um, Sometimes there's an underbelly to it, as there is to everything um, but but I, I I find that we can be light bringers, and people don't seem to resent that so oh that's neat and and you're a canonist,
0: obviously, so you're accustomed to the underbelly even of Holy Mother Church, so you probably are not surprised to discover it elsewhere <laughs> um, well you know one thing that kind of got me interested in circuses, the reason why we ended up connecting is because a video there was a video kind of floating around of a circus performance at the at the Post Wednesday audience. And you see this seems like pretty often. Every year at least, yeah. For a lot of people, it's kind of hokey. And why does the church do this? And this seems like such a sort of weird custom to have. What what is your sort of take on this um customary thing of having circuses kind of at the at the Holy See?
1: Uh, you know, I honestly think it has a lot to do with uh, circus people who understand themselves as maybe not having roots. Mm-hmm. But seeing the Holy Father certainly as part of their rootedness, that you know, it, again, it it started with and and often our our um, Italian circuses, mm-hmm. but through history, other big circuses like Crone and and others have kind of come along the way as well. But you know, he really is Papa, and and that notion of of uh, a rootedness that can at least be found there in the Church, uh, that's kind of a real drive for. For people. So I think a connection uh, uh, to the Holy Father uh, uh, from these rootless, otherwise rootless people has always kind of been a very interesting symbol. And, and, and uh, circuses have, you know, they really fit that bill. I, I have a friend who has clowned in the United States, but he, he's from Italy and his family own two circuses in Italy. And one year they were the circus that uh, came and performed for the Holy Father. And, uh, you know, just talking to him about his family's reaction to it it was very much that kind of deal that it's like a sense of being connected to home and to what really counts. And and for folks who uh, don't have a rootedness and who have to rely so often on the applause and the laughter of others to even get a sense of self, mm-hmm. uh, that becomes a very important uh, uh, depth to have. And I. I honestly think that's part of the imagination of why performing for the Pope is such an important annual event, really. It happens pretty much every year, usually in January, because that's when circuses in Europe have their downtime Mm -hmm. most often. And so they can bring a troop in and visit um, uh, the Holy Father. So I I think that's where some of it really uh, comes from. And knowing folks in America, I think they relate to that same thing. Yeah where does um in
0: circus culture in america so you had barnum and bailey and they were the big guys and they're out of of business now and so ringling brothers and barnum bailey thanks and so you have sort of a smaller my i took my kids to kind of like a what i think of as a parking lot circus you know kind of like in a mall parking lot there was a small circus and it was really cool actually and and uh, and we all really enjoyed it.
1: Remember the name
0: of it? No, I don't remember the name of it. I thought you might ask, but it was cool anyway. Um, and it was a guy I think who had worked at Ringling
1: Brothers. Kevin DeNardo's. Maybe... What's Kevin that? Leonardo. Kevin Donardo's De and DeNardo's Circus. That? How did Kevin. you know that? Well, I know I know Kevin and I know the show very well. So. That was it's like true. an amazing
0: circus trick that you knew which circus I went through. Well done. <laughs> that was. So well, do you ever? One,
1: I do know that he goes through Colorado. So. Okay. Uh, is that where you live? I, yeah, that's I where I live in Colorado. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do know it goes through there. He, he's not the only one that goes through there, but I, I, I know he goes through Colorado. So that narrows it automatically for me. But when you say a small show, you know, Kevin is really a small show, 400 seats in his uh-huh. in his tent. And he was a former ringmaster for uh, for Ringling Brothers. And he's put together a phenomenal uh, small show. It really is quite a good yeah it was cool
0: we we loved it it was really cool and um,
1: he opens up again next month in texas i'll be there for his opening Oh, that's month. really
0: well please tell him please tell him that a guy you talked to enjoyed the show but you have uh-huh. circuses like that and then the other kind of circus that i think of in america is cirque du soleil does cirque du soleil fit into a kind of circus culture or is it sort of its own thing
1: it is kind of its own thing although more and more Classical circus personnel are moving into work at Cirque du Soleil. So I think you're going to start to see a little bit of a shift and a change. Uh, Cirque uh, uh, has a different kind of show schedule. You know, circuses have to perform to survive. Yeah. Cirque doesn't quite have that same mentality. They, they'll they run a, a, a three or four day week and one show or two shows a day, you know, just because that's who they are. <laughs> so circus do circus people sort of think of them as kind of... Um a
0: different, you know, sort of a a prima donna breed or anything like that? Is there a...
1: No, I don't think so. I I think that certain performers um, might like to get certain gigs on Soleil just because they're good gigs to have. Like if you're a trapeze artist, in particular, it's a good gig to have a a Soleil show. You won't be working uh, necessarily in the same way you have to putting up and taking down stuff with the same regularity you have to do on a traveling show. But you know, Big Bertha, or the big show, was Ringling Brothers for, yeah. for many years, although a lot of people, too, would also say that they didn't see that as the standard in the industry either. But there are big shows around still that people uh, uh, try to clamor to get to be part of still today. There's Circo Romanes Vasquez, big Spanish-speaking uh, circus. Universal Circus, very popular. Hmm. Uh, African Creed Circus, especially in the East Coast. And Circus Vargas on the West Coast is another – fairly large, pretty popular uh, a show, Cirque Italia, which has five units traveling mm-hmm. the country in, in, in different ways. So so the, there are standards out there that people see as, uh, I think I'd like to work for them. But but a lot of it has more to do with your, your particular skill than the
0: particular show. Okay. There's a Masonic Circus too, right? I mean, there's a Shriner Circus, right? Shriner Circus,
1: yeah, but that's not really a circus as much as it's each individual shrine. Hires a producer who puts draws acts in and they put oh. together a show. So a shriner circus is not a traveling show, as much as it's a produced uh, uh, show in, in a given locale.
0: Okay. What what is a three ring circus?
1: So it would be a circus that has three rings in it. I, sure. I, I think I think Garden Brothers might be the only one that's doing three rings right now. So. So three. the issue was you dazzle everybody with as much as you can throw at them. That was, that was entertainment in the circus. And so there were three performance areas, each kind of encapsulated by a ring. Yeah. And, and uh, in the circus, the center ring was always your best performers. Ring one, which was the one closest to the portal or the curtain, would be your second best performers. And then ring three. Well, those those are the ones you could ignore. Mm-hmm. They were still kind of learning it. So it it not only was a way to have multiple entertainment for people, it was a way to give performers time uh, to kind of hone their skills as well.
0: Yeah, well, that's interesting. And and what do you think, Father, of um the. Uh... The a change has happened. I, I don't know. You know. I think this probably contributed to issues, probably with Ringling Brothers. But the, a change happened with the way that people think about animals and circuses. And um, having been around circuses for decades and decades and decades, I mean, do you think that it's true that circuses were unduly cruel to animals? Is it a good thing that circuses moved away from animals? What's your kind of read on that?
1: Yeah, I, I've never seen anyone who works with animals do anything untoward toward a, a, an animal that they cared for, never seen it. And I had the kind of access that I could go in and out of areas without being announced, without them knowing I was coming. It wasn't like, oh, we'll clean up because the priest is coming. Right. I had total access and I've never seen any of that. I do have to say that some of the organizations uh, that purport these things, they aren't really telling the whole truth mm-hmm. uh, about things. And, and And to be really honest with you, the financial investment alone, say of a a herd of elephants right. is so significant. why would you treat an elephant in, in a way that they 're not going to give you their best performance it 's very hard to get a seven thousand pound animal to do something it doesn 't want to do yeah you know? and 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 so in order to really work with an animal and and treat them. Uh, well, that, it, it behooves you to do that. They're, they're eating 200 pounds of food a day themselves. So they're talking about tremendous financial investments. Add to that, you know, all of these animals are born in captivity. There are no wild animals in right. circuses and haven't been for quite some time. So, uh, so in a very real way, it, the circus becomes a way to stimulate some of the um, uh, activity of an animal in terms of its everyday life. And but no, I have to be honest. I've, n- I've never seen anyone treat an animal badly or poorly. Even even the, the bull hook ar- argument, you know, bull hooks aren't aren't, aren't so sharp. They're there for a reason, and and if you recognize the thickness of an elephant's skin and how they're used as an extra finger is really the best way to kind of describe it. Um, you know, the use of it is not. It's not an offensive or a a, a problematic uh, issue, but. People not knowing uh, that, I think, has, has led to uh, a lot of notions about circus animals that, to be really frank, aren't really uh, true. And, you know, Ringling for years fought it. In fact, they won two very large lawsuits against uh, some of these organizations. But, but they were spending so much money every year in litigation. That was one of the reasons that led them to decide it's, it's time to pull the elephants off the, off the show. And quite frankly, when they did, most of us think... But That's what led to the demise of the show itself. Mm-hmm. People stopped coming after they did that. It really was still a, a significant thing for folks who were coming to the shows. And yeah, and so well, what have
0: animal people done? I mean, where did the animal people kind of go when this? There, there are
1: still circuses with animals. So so there are people working with uh, animals on on shows. Others have gone to uh, other countries that that have um, continued the practice of having. Animals, probably one of the best cat people I know, uh, Alexander Lacey, is back in Germany with his family, still working with uh, with his cats and, and along with his mother and his brother uh, uh, there. Um, so they're, they're still uh, working. And others have either gone to farms or they're working in zoos or or they've gotten into something completely different. But um, but their animals are still around. It's just they're not as prominent as they were. I love, Father, that you have a go-to
0: lion guy. That's, you know, not a lot of people have <laughs> that kind of in their contacts list or whatever. That's cool. So um, I want to just ask you a couple of questions. We're going to, I want to, on our show, we play games a lot. And, uh, and so um, a, a game that I had in mind for you is just a little bit of circus either or. So I'm going to kind of give you two circus things. And then you're going to tell me just your immediate reaction to sort of which one. Um, you know, you, you don't All have right. to think about anything, just kind of your immediate, your immediate reaction to, uh, to, to one of these things. Okay, um, Father, um, we're going to start with circus movies. Um, Greatest Showman or Dumbo? Dumbo. Okay. Uh, Snow cone or cotton candy?
1: Mm, Snow cone.
0: And is that, what's the best value from, when I take my kids to the circus and they're clamoring to eat something, other than sneaking food in my bag, what is the best sort of value for me at the circus?
1: I think the snow cone is. Both are horribly expensive. Right. But, but, you know, all you're getting with, uh, in the business we call, cotton candy floss mm-hmm. because that's all it is. It's just puffed air with some sugar in it. So you, you actually are getting more
0: for your money with the snow cone. Oh, that's really good to know. So if I'm going to, if I have a choice of what kind of circus to go to, should I go to a tent circus or an arena circus? Tent. Tent. Why? What's? What, I mean, it seems old school, but otherwise what's great about a tent? I, think,
1: I think that the ambiance of tent circuses, especially today, are just, it's just a much better way of operating. You have far more control over what you're doing in a tent than when you're using someone else's arena. All
0: right. Fair enough. Um, okay. Uh, Father, th- these are two, uh, you know, so, you know, Batman and Robin, um, yeah. you know, and you probably know that Robin, you know, uh, there, there've been a couple of Robins. I think there've been four Robins now. And the first two Robins, I, I don't know if you know, this were both circus performers. Um, so um, you, you're looking at me like you didn't know that. So this is going to be a totally <laughs> arbitrary choice on your part. But, you know, um, <laughs> um, but uh, oh, the first two Robins, both circus performers, Dick Grayson and Jason Todd. So who's your go-to circus Robin?
1: Uh, Dick Grayson.
0: Okay. I, I thought you were going to say that. I, I thought you were, and you did. And so it was a good choice because uh, you're right about that. Um, uh, now, if you go to an animal circus, um, what, what is your preference, lions or elephants? Elephants yeah be, because you like elephants more i mean you're you have an experience that most of us don't and that you actually like probably have t- touched an elephant touched a lion been around these elephants, been on top been of them yes. been yeah. on top of them even yeah. and so you like you know lions and elephants and you like to watch them perform more or you like them more sort of as as, as
1: animals uh as animals elephants are amazingly intelligent and interactive i would i would often when ringling brothers was in houston um, you know, they were in the big arena there and that meant they could bring the elephants inside and one, one third of the entire uh, arena was where they kept the elephants at night. And after the last show, when everything's quiet and dark, I would take a chair and I would just go and sit by, by the elephant area just to watch them. Cause that was their playtime. They would do a lot of their play at that point with big logs and tires. And I would just sit and watch. I'd watch them for hours sometimes at night just because. They're fascinating. Their interactions are fascinating. What what they reason, how they reason things out, fascinating to watch. And they're just my favorite animal that way. Cool. Okay. Last uh, circus either or, um, sad
0: clowns or happy clowns.
1: Happy clowns.
0: Yeah, not a sad clown man.
1: No. Mm-mm. Well, I think, I think being a sad clown's hard in a circus because you can only communicate one one emotion.
0: Sure. Fair. Yeah well these are good these are good things for us to know as we go to a circus and just before we conclude father Frank thanks so much for being with us what what uh, what can our listeners uh, pray for in your ministry and in, in the work that you do
1: so I would ask you to pray for all those who travel down the road who who uh, for their safety especially as they travel and for their safety as they perform you know that when we talk about death defying acts that isn't that isn't just advertising that, that that happens sometimes so to pray for the safety of people who, who are willing to perform because they want you to enjoy them. That, that's really why they're there doing it. And to give thanks to God for that and to pray for their safety. Uh, I think that would be a wonderful way to support what they do.
0: Thank you. I, thank you for being with us. Um, what you just said reminded me of one other question that I, one of the set of questions that I wanted to ask. So if you have two more minutes, I'll just ask you about that. <laughs> um, but one one thing I wondered about is uh, how is the pay for circus performers? Are circus performers, like I I would imagine that many circus performers are just, you know, paycheck to paycheck and, and, and living kind of on the edge in certain ways.
1: Well, pay has gotten better, certainly as time has gone on, but the fact of the matter is uh, these two years have been a perfect examples. if you're not performing, you're not getting paid. So, you know, so um, it really depends on how solid your show is and, and how successful your house is in terms of bringing uh, people in. So, uh, some acts can be paid significant, significantly good money. Others make a minimum wage enough to survive uh, mm-hmm. on. It depends on on what it is that you, you are uh, doing. But it's far better than it was, say, even 10 years ago. And, you know, some circus jobs are union jobs. So mm-hmm. there, there's a certain requirement of both pay and benefits connected to those. We, you know, our ministry actually, we run a mobile home park in Florida for retired circus folks who don't have the means to survive in any other way. So on a sliding scale, we provide a place for them to bring their mobile home and to live Cool. um, um, because they didn't make a lot of money or didn't have a retirement plan or um, the way things worked out that they didn't have the resources to be able to do that. So it's, it's across the board, but these days it's certainly better than it was.
0: And if you're, I mean, I have to imagine that if you're a strong man or a trapeze artist or some other kind of... I I have to imagine that it's just in the circus's interest that people have health insurance. Is that usually the case or how does that work?
1: Yeah, there there is a a health insurance that's had both by individuals and sometimes the show provides it because uh, uh, insurance for the kind of activities you do is sometimes more expensive than just normal health insurance. Sure. Yeah. So there are special companies that do insurance for circus performers. Okay. Wow.
0: Where can circus performers get? So you provide pastoral care for a circus performer, but what if I'm a circus performer and I want want, um, to talk to a therapist? I mean, is there a way in which circus performers can have mental accesses or mental health care?
1: Some of it goes through their insurance programs, but I would say more often than not, we become the gateway to that. Uh, It's often we on the shows will uh, work in an area to try and find a mental health worker to, to work with folks on the show. One of the things that's been very helpful in the last five years is the fact that now there's some internet-based, yeah. counseling available, which wasn't the case maybe even five years ago. And that actually has made some things uh, helpful. I, I think it's averted a few tragedies, to be very honest, that we can plunk people into that kind of stuff.
0: What if I'm a circus performer and I want to go to AA or NAR? I mean, are there sort of meetings on the road in some circuses or...
1: Yeah, and, it, and in fact, uh, uh, a lot of folks are resourceful enough to figure that out themselves in a town to go to one. Or on some shows, they'd have their own uh, small yeah. gatherings of people who would get together on a regular basis for AA or NA or uh, some other 12-step group.
0: Yeah, well, that's really neat. Okay, that, those are the only other things I want to add. Is there anything else that you want to add that I didn't ask you about?
1: No, I appreciate the time just to talk about it. Again, not many people know it enough to talk about it. And most people are always surprised when they hear about it. Thank you. I I really appreciate it.
0: The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn, and I am joined by a special guest, Father Frank Cancro, the National Circus Chaplain. We'll be back next week.